Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, she was nicknamed the Poor Little Rich Girl. Her grandfather was Frank Woolworth of the famed Woolworth's department store chain. Her father was the co-founder of E.F. Hutton, the stock brokerage firm. Barbara Hutton was her real name. She grew up as a single child in the lap of luxury in the 1920s. After her 18th birthday party took an inflation-adjusted $1 million to fund, she was ushered off to Europe to avoid more negative press than she was already getting. Because her mother had died when she was just five years old and her father died not long after that, Hutton inherited $50 million when she turned 21 years old in 1933. That's just over $972 million when adjusted for inflation. This ended up being the beginning of an almost 50-year spending spree, during which she splurged her millions on jewelry, museum pieces, travel, a plane, and showering her friends with gifts. Adding to her already leaky purse, uh, was Barbara's seven marriages and seven divorces, most of which were to men who spent her money frivolously and got millions in divorce settlements. Only one of her husbands uh, did not spend her money or get a settlement, and that was the famous actor Cary Grant. In the sunset years of her life, Barbara blew the remainder of her inheritance on alcohol and painkillers, after a couple of botched surgeries, and she died in 1979 at the age of 66, living in a Beverly Hills hotel on the verge of bankruptcy. I don't know about you, but stories about children who squander their inheritance just saddens me. And I think it's because we expect those who have been entrusted with much to do much with their life. But you're not alone, and thankfully neither am I. The Lord has expectations of His children, and He's entrusted us with everything we need to meet them. And this is one reason why the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus. They were a church just like us, a church plant who had been entrusted with tremendous resources, a tremendous inheritance that the Lord and Paul did not want to see squandered. We're beginning a new series today called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and take out the sermon notes in your worship folder that you received. 
I've got uh, several blanks for you to fill in, and I'm going to give you an overview of the book of Ephesians, and I hope it'll be helpful for you uh, in your devotions, and maybe in the future if you come back and study the book on your own. Uh, apologize for the small print on the sermon note handout. We're having issues with our printer again, and um, trying to work with them to get things figured out. So uh, um, I, that is not a trick I'm doing to see how small you can read or how much you can squint. It's, it's not a joke or anything like that. I'll just tell you, when I sent it to the printers, it was all 12-point font, okay? So uh, as you turn there and you get your pens out and ready to go, let me fill you in on some context. Uh, Paul is writing the letter to the Ephesians from Rome, uh, and let me tell you how he got there. Uh, the last few chapters of Acts uh, tell us that shortly after Paul returned to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey, a rival group of Jews beat him, falsely accused him, and then had him illegally arrested by Roman authorities. That's in Acts 21. Why? Well, they were desperate to do anything they could to stop him from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, after two years of political red tape and an arduous journey across the Mediterranean Sea, Paul arrives in Rome to wait for an opportunity to present his case to Caesar the leader of the Roman Empire, the superpower in the world at that time. And so while Paul waits, he's placed under house arrest, chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, and forgotten for another two years. And that's talked about in Acts chapter 28. It's during these two years, which are uh, 60 to 62 AD, that he wrote... Letters to the churches in Philippi, Ephesus, Colossae, and a fourth letter to a slave owner named Philemon. That's why these four New Testament books are commonly called the prison epistles. Now, here's a little background on uh, Ephesians, a little more detail. Uh, I told you that Paul was under house arrest from 60 to 62 AD for two years in Rome. Most scholars believe that he wrote this letter uh, early on in his imprisonment, uh, 60 to 61 A.D. It was penned by him uh, after he had actually helped plant the church in Ephesus around 53 A.D. And then he left and came back again to Ephesus and spent three years there, 54 to 57. And then he's writing them three to four years later, while under house arrest. So Paul had a special connection with this church. He not only had helped start the church in Ephesus, but he also spent a considerable amount of time with them, probably more than any other church that he helped plant. Ephesus is a city, and I'll show you on the map here on the screen behind me, it's a, it's a major commercial hub located uh, on the coast of Turkey overlooking the Aegean Sea. It's a harbor city, and in the first century, Ephesus boasted a 25,000-seat outdoor theater. It also was famous for, a second thing it was famous for, was being home to the Temple of Artemis. Artemis was, uh, the Temple of Artemis, excuse me, was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
Artemis herself was uh, a Greek goddess of the hunt and fertility. And not only was Ephesus home to thousands of Artemis idol worshipers, uh, there also were plenty of uh, pagans who practiced black magic and astrology there. And that's detailed in Acts chapter 19. If you've read Acts, uh, the book of Acts before, you might remember in Acts 19 when the gospel came and started to change lives and uh, some of the converts from Artemis and black magic and astrology began to burn all their books and their idols, there was a riot that broke out in the city because it hurt the economy. There was one man, I think his name was Demetrius, who made a really good living creating idols of Artemis and selling them. And well, when the gospel came into town and people no longer wanted to buy idols from him because they now love Jesus, well, Demetrius wanted Paul killed. And so um, Paul had to be rushed out of the city uh, in order to spare his life because uh, a riot had broken out and things had gotten out of control. Something else that's worth noting about um, Ephesus is that this is most likely why Paul wrote extensively in chapter 6 of this letter about spiritual warfare. As you can imagine, uh, Ephesus was a stronghold of demonic powers with the cults that I just mentioned. Ephesus was also a wealthy city because the temple of Artemis doubled as a central bank for Asia Minor. It had massive amounts of treasure and currency from the region that were stored there. And so we have a wealthy city, we've got a pagan city with demonic strongholds, and Paul planted a church there. And that church was thriving. Now, his purpose for writing is different than some of the other letters that we've studied before. In addition to the historical and manuscript data, another proof that Ephesians and Colossians were written close to the same time is that um, those two letters, Ephesians and the Colossians, share 35 verses in common. One on the other, on, excuse me, on the other hand, Ephesians is distinct from Colossians and other letters in that Paul wasn't writing to the Ephesians to solve a particular problem. There's really no particular problem he's trying to fix in the six chapters of this book. Instead, he, he seems to write about topics that are relevant to any church, like we're going to see in the coming weeks. He, he talks about salvation, uh, pursuing holiness. Uh, unity in the church, marriage, parenting, spiritual warfare, and several other topics. And so his purpose in writing just seems to be to simply encourage and strengthen the faith of the church. So this letter is more instructional than it is correctional. Say, for example, you've heard me mention the Corinthians. They had issues. Uh, scholars believe the Corinthians got four letters from Paul, two of which made it into the canon of Scripture. And if you compare the length of those two letters, they are longer than any other church got. And there were multiple issues that Paul was having to address there. As always, I like to mention key words or themes that will help us understand Paul's message, the author's message in the letter. And so um, this is something that scholars do to understand further what the, what, what the author is trying to get across. Uh, we call it uh, in, in, uh, in preaching authorial intent. What is the intent of the author? What's he trying to convey? And we can discern that 
even more effectively by looking at what his favorite words are. What words does he use more often? What words does he strategically place in certain spots of the letter? And there are, there are three I want to bring to your attention. First of all is in Christ. Not a word, but I guess a phrase. The apostle uses this exact phrase, in Christ, nine times, nine to ten times actually throughout the letter. One commentator even says a more careful reading would detect this concept in its various grammatical forms more than 30 times in the letter. Uh, this phrase is important because it's Paul's attempt to show that the local church is more than just identified with Christ, but rather a part of Christ's body. So when Paul describes, for example, the church submitting to Christ as its head in chapter 5, he literally means like our physical bodies submit to our head on our shoulders. He's not speaking figuratively. So, so as Christ goes, like the head on a body, the church goes is what he's trying to say. So in Christ is repeated several times throughout the letter. Next, the church, or just church, excuse me. The apostles' use of the Greek word for church, ekklesia, uh, shows up nine times in this letter. And he references church, or the church, universal, or local, a handful of other times as well. The Greek word for church, ekklesia, literally means called out ones. It's, it's, the, it's, it's a reference to believers who have been called out of the world. Hey, come to Jesus! And they come out of the world into the church. It also means assembly or gathering. Sometimes this word for church refers to the universal church, which would be believers everywhere around the world. And sometimes it refers to local churches, like this church here in Bakersfield, or, or back then it would be the, the one church in Ephesus. There was one church in Colossae. Next, the third term or phrase, it's actually two terms he uses uh, as synonyms, together and one. Together and one. Paul references one of these words at least nine times throughout the book. And this is because one of the issues he was trying to get ahead of, it's not that it was really a problem yet in Ephesus, but he didn't want it to become a problem, and that is in other churches there was disunity that was created by Jewish converts and Gentile converts. Having come from two different backgrounds, they were coming into the church and then fighting over their backgrounds and traditions and freedom in Christ. This is detailed more in Romans chapter 14, if you want to read more on that. So, uh, in Christ, church, and then together, or one. Those are going to show up throughout our study, and I'll be referencing them throughout the series. The book breaks down similar to Colossians. It splits in half. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians talk about our position in Christ. So it's theological. We're going to get a heavy dose of theology in the first three chapters here. But then in chapters 4 through 6, it's going to get real practical. It's going to talk about our purpose in Christ. 
Most of the verses, I don't know if you've noticed this like I have, most of the verses that Christians like to quote from Ephesians come on the last three chapters. And I think that's because they're practical, they're easy to remember, we can connect with them. They're verses about parenting and unity or spiritual gifts or, or marriage and so on and so forth, warfare. However, it's crucial to remember that those practical verses that are on the back end of the book are intended to be a byproduct of the theology on the front end. And so I'm going to remind you of that as we go through this letter together in the coming weeks. It's also critical to remember this, that the practical verses on the back end are a byproduct of the theological verses on the front end. It's, it's important to remember that because our theology should shape how we think and how we behave. And our theology is, in essence, what you're going to see here in chapters 1 through 3, it's what God says about His people. And so what God says about His people in His church, in chapters 1 through 3, should shape how we think, which should in turn shape how we behave. That's a theme that's going to show up throughout the letter. And so, throughout this letter, Paul will remind us directly and indirectly that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were chosen for a purpose. And, and your position in Christ should determine your purpose in life. Well, what's, what's our purpose in life? To glorify God in every area of our lives. The theme verse next that I think captures everything that Paul's trying to get across in this theme of being chosen for a purpose, that our position in Christ should influence our purpose for Christ. The theme verse, and I want to encourage you to underline it in your own Bible, is Ephesians 1.4. Let's read it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I've chosen this as our theme verse because I think if we were to pause at any point in the letter and to ask ourselves, why is Paul saying this about marriage or about spiritual gifts or about, about um, unity or parenting or uh, spiritual warfare? I think the answer to that question would be chapter 1, verse 4. Why do, we need to, why do husbands need to love their wives as Christ loved the church? Because you were chosen before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Well, why should wives submit to their husbands? Because you were chosen before the foundations of the world that you should be holy and blameless and He has a purpose for you. And so it's this premise that forms the foundation of the introduction that we're going to be looking at today, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and it sets up our big idea as well. So here, here's the big idea for today, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We've been blessed with everything we need to glorify God with our lives. We've been blessed with everything we need to glorify God with our lives. In Ephesians 1 more specifically 3 to 14, there's a reminder to believers 
that God did a lot more than just punch your ticket to heaven when you gave your life to Christ. The passage also, as we study it this morning, it's a reminder or a declaration, better yet, to unbelievers that they need more than a ticket out of hell. I believe one blind spot that all human beings share in common is that we, we all have spiritual problems we're unaware of that God's already provided solutions for. And he's going to list, Paul's going to list several of the solutions here in the text. And so follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 1 through 6. The first two verses are his greeting, and then he gets into the meat of his theology in verse 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here's the first point on your outline, uh, and that's this. At conversion... We are blessed by the Father. There's a Trinitarian theme in this passage. And what I mean by that is that he's going to reference what the Father does, what the Son does, and what the Spirit does when someone gives their life to Christ. And so that, in essence, is the structure of the passage. Notice uh, in verse 3, the title of this message comes from the repeated use of the word blessed. Uh, it's there in the ESV, blessed or blessing, in verses 3 and then 6. Now, although the three references you see in verse 3 look the same, they actually are different variants of the Greek word for blessing that mean three different things. Uh, Blessed be the God, for example, if you see that at the beginning of verse 3, or blessed be God, excuse me, means to, means to praise God. You know, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Uh, blessed us means to, he blessed us, excuse me, it means to, to bestow something on someone else. And then when it says spiritual blessings, with every spiritual blessing there in verse 3, it's referring to a benefit that we get from somebody, in this case, the Lord. And so verse 3 tells us when God blessed us, which is in eternity past, what he blessed us with, and that is spiritual resources, where he blessed us, which is in the heavenly places, and how he blessed us, which is in Christ. Next, the apostle gets more specific by beginning to list out the blessings the Father has provided for us. And I apologize, um, these two subpoints are not on your outline. I forgot to put them on there. So that's my bad, not the printer's fault. 
Um, letter A is this. He, the Father blessed us by choosing us. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, Paul makes it abundantly clear in verse 4 that you did not choose Christ, he chose you. Verses 4 and 5, where it says he predestined us, they are two pillar verses that support what theologians call the doctrine of unconditional election. The main text of this doctrine can be found in Romans 9 through 11, 9, 10, and 11, those three chapters, if you want to read up on it some more. Also, Paul talks about the doctrine of election in Romans 8, 29 to 30, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. Let me just do my best to summarize election in one sentence, if I could. Uh, unconditional election is God's sovereign choice in eternity past to grant some unbelievers the ability to repent of their sin and express faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord chooses whom he will save because unbelievers are dead in their trespasses. Ephesians 2.1 says that. Blind to their need of salvation. 2 Corinthians 4.4. And in bondage to sin. Romans chapter 6. It's unconditional because there's no merit or anything that the unbeliever can do to get their salvation. And this is why Ephesians 2.8 says, and I know you're familiar with this verse, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. What Paul's trying to say there is that you did not save yourself, meaning you didn't even get yourself to Jesus. Jesus got you to himself. Now, there are a couple of implications that come to mind regarding the doctrine of unconditional election. The first is, the longer you walk with the Lord, your testimony should evolve from, I chose him, to he chose me. I know mine has. Why? Because not only is that biblically accurate, but... Also, because as you grow closer to the Lord, it should become more and more clear how you were unable to earn your salvation and how totally lost you were without Him. Another implication that comes to mind about election is that those who know Christ should be especially humbled because besides being unable to earn our salvation... We were so lost, we couldn't even get ourselves to the Savior under our own power. Now, I know that the doctrine of election causes synapses to short-circuit in finite brains like ours. And unfortunately, I don't have time to unpack it and help make sense of it for you. And even if I did... I think we all would still have more questions. It is mysterious. It is difficult for us to understand how God does this, how, how God's sovereignty comes together with man's choosing. And it's always been a mystery. It's hard to understand. I've been studying it a lot this week, and I'm still going, what was, say it, read that again. 
all I can tell you is I want to encourage you to, if you want to learn more about the doctrine of election that's clearly taught in Scripture, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of Sam Storm's book, Chosen for Life. It's referenced in your worship folder. It's a great book, pretty easy to read, and he breaks down the different views on election and answers some of the tough questions. Next, here's another way the Father blesses believers at conversion, and that is, letter B, by adopting us. By adopting us. Adoption is a very, uh, well, it's talked about several places in the New Testament. It's something that God does for his children. To adopt means, well, simply to voluntarily take in someone who was born outside of your family and to treat them as though they belong to your family. Uh, for the adopter, it means to take on all the burdens and responsibilities for that person's care and development. And for the adoptee, it means gaining access to the legal rights and inheritance normally reserved for those born in the family. That's, that's what adoption is, in essence, in the Scriptures. The Lord adopts unbelievers into his family when they repent of their sin and by faith trust in Christ alone for their salvation. As a result, believers get access to all the privileges and promises that God has reserved only for his children. So if you are a believer, you've been chosen and you've been adopted. Let's look back at the text again in the next section. Paul's going to move into the next part of the Trinity. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Uh, here's number two in your outline. At conversion, we are blessed by the Son. At conversion, we are blessed by the Son. Now, if what I just read sounded like a run-on sentence in English, it's even longer in the Greek. Verses 3 to 14 in the Greek text are all one sentence. And I'm doing my best here, and I prayed really hard, Lord, help me make sense of this for our people, for your people. I know it's heavy, it's doctrinal, it's theological, there's big words that he uses, and he goes on. It's hard to read this, because I don't know where to take my breaths at when I'm reading it. But, with the Lord's help, we're going to understand it. Notice another thing we want to look at is repeated terms in this text. In him, do you see that in your Bible? In verse 7. It starts in verse 4 as well, but then it's in verse 7, 11, and 13. In him, in him, in him. This is Paul making it clear again that all these spiritual blessings that he's rattling off in the passage can only be found in Christ. They cannot be found anywhere else 
through anyone else. They only come through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. So how does the Son bless believers at the point of conversion? Here's letter A. By redeeming us. By redeeming us. It says in verse 7, we have redemption through His blood. The word redemption comes from a Greek word that means to free from ransom or to release. The term was used in the Old Testament to Old Testament marketplace and involved the idea of purchasing or buying back some item or person that would otherwise be lost or taken prisoner or destroyed. It was understood to signify the release from bondage through the payment of a price. So just like a kidnapper demands a ransom before releasing his victim, our sin and the adversary held us hostage until Jesus paid our ransom with his blood and we received that ransom by repenting of our sin and trusting in him. That's, that's the imagery Paul's trying to paint here. That Jesus, with his blood and his death, forked up the price that it was going to take to set sinners free. Next, letter B, he unites us. He unites us. In verse 10 it says, he, he did all these things to unite all things to him. Now, some people talk a lot about disunity that seems to exist in the universal church, and I have observed that as well. However, I think there are also plenty of examples of unity if we choose to see them. I was remembering back as I studied this passage, back in the 1990s, I traveled with a men's ministry in my home church to go to a Promise Keepers conference in Kansas City, Missouri. I witnessed amazing unity of 30 to 40,000 men singing praises to the Lord, unashamed because their wives weren't there, uh, but unified, and then striking up conversations with other men from other parts of the country who were born again and, and loving the Lord and making commitments in their lives. And then we, when we needed a place to stay as a, as a church group and to lay our heads on Saturday night, I was amazed to see a small Baptist church open up its doors and let us crash in their facility and use their showers and bathrooms. And we struck up conversations with them, having never met them before. But it was as though we had known them. I witnessed the unifying power of Christ uh, on a much larger scale in the late 2000s when I traveled to Kenya, Africa and got to worship with believers filled with the same spirit I am, but they live in another part of the world, speak a different language, and live in a totally different culture. They sing songs in a different language, yet we worship the same God together. And I was amazed to see, wow, this is, this is what it is like when you know the Lord and you meet somebody else you've never met before who knows the Lord, there's an instant common bond that you share. And unbelievers don't get that. It, maybe the closest thing would be meeting, a, you know, if you're a Bears fan, meeting another Bears fan or a Cubs fan, meeting another Cubs fan somewhere else in the world. Or I should rather say Packers fans. They're pretty rabid and widespread, but, uh, and they show up in places I never thought they would. Um, but 
but still, it's not even close to one spirit-filled believer meeting another spirit-filled believer and instantly being able to talk about the Lord because you have something in common, something powerful, something deeply spiritual. That's the power of Christ uniting all things to Him. And getting people united, it's a hard thing to do. But Jesus is able to do it. Next, letter C, He endows us. Another way He blesses us is endowing us. In verse 11, it says, In Him we've obtained an inheritance. Inheritance is something owned by one person that's passed down to an heir who did not earn it or work to earn it or produce it. And for believers, our inheritance is eternal life in heaven. 1 Peter 1.4 says our inheritance is unlike any other inheritance on this earth in that it will never spoil, perish, or fade. And so our heavenly inheritance cannot decay. It cannot rust. It cannot fall apart. It cannot be stolen because it's being guarded by the Lord. And so... The Son, how He bless us? Well, by redeeming us, by uniting us, by endowing us, which brings us back to the big idea again. We've been blessed with everything we need to glorify God with our lives. This, this includes forgiveness through redemption, fellowship with other believers, being united, and having an inheritance that's guarded in heaven so we don't need to worry about what's going to happen on the other side of the grave. We don't need to worry about, is, is God going to come through? Is He going to take care of Everything that I've, I've stored away, all the, all the money I've invested in the kingdom, is God going to take care of that? Oh, yeah. He's got it covered. You don't have to worry. You can just focus on serving him down here because everything will be waiting for you up there. Finally, let's look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, in him, there's that repeated phrase, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's number three on your outline. At conversion, we are blessed by the Spirit. At conversion, we are blessed by the Spirit. How? Well, here's letter A. By he blesses us by securing our salvation. We need to make sure we don't miss what Paul is saying here in this thick theological language. So I want to really try and put some high-definition color on this for you. When he says there in verse 13, if you look at your Bible, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Paul is using an old Greek verb in the original text that means to impress a mark or stamp of ownership. Years ago, my wife got me an embosser, I think from Barnes & Noble, for me to use on my pastoral library. Pastors have, we, we collect books because we have to do a lot of reading to write sermons. And my last count, I had just over 500 volumes in my, 
my library. But sometimes what happens is people borrow books and don't return them. Or when I was on staff at a, in larger churches, pastors would borrow books from each other, and then, then we'd be like, I'd be in another pastor's office. Is that my copy or is that yours? Are you sure you bought that? Let me look at it. That's my underlining. I, I mark my books like that. Come on. Well, a way to keep my books to be my books was to emboss my initials on the inside cover. And an embosser basically just impresses a seal or a stamp on the page. Well, that's what, that's what in a similar sense, what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that God stamps genuine believers with the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion so that the entire universe knows they belong to me, and the adversary knows that you belong to him. But also, here's this. The Holy Spirit is not just a stamp, according to Paul. The Holy Spirit is also a deposit. And that's letter B. He guarantees our inheritance. Verse 14 says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? So he's a seal and he's a guarantee. Well, what's this mean? Paul's using banking language here in the original text of verse 14. Some translations render this deposit. Um, the original language uses a word that means earnest money, a pledge, or a down payment, showing the intention of paying the full amount later. Similar to what we do when we buy a house. If you've bought a house before, you have to put earnest money down to show that you're serious about buying the house and you, that you have skin in the game. Well, that's what the Lord does when it comes to the inheritance for His children. The Holy Spirit was not only sent to indwell believers to help them understand the truth of Scripture and to to be guided in their decision-making and to be convicted when they sin, but also as a stamp of ownership and as a deposit, a down payment for a future inheritance. Well, you've done great taking notes and sticking with me as I wade through this run-on sentence that Paul wrote that's loaded with all sorts of blessings and good stuff. Here's a couple applications that I think we can take home with us today. First of all, I want to encourage you to, application number one, thank the Lord for your spiritual blessings, not just your material ones. I mentioned earlier in this uh, passage that it's a, it's a reminder, verses 3 through 14 are a reminder to believers that God did a lot more than just punch your ticket to heaven. Well, he's also, according to verse 3, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One of the many reasons I think it's difficult for American evangelicals to grasp the spiritual blessings that God's given us, is that in our first world culture, and I think prosperity preachers also in our country, have conditioned us to think that blessings are only material. Thus, if we have material needs, 
that God hasn't met yet, or we covet more than what he's already given us, then we, we can start to think we're not blessed because I don't have what I want. And so if you're a believer who's disappointed with what the Lord is not doing for you here on earth, maybe you should post some of these verses here around your house, in your bathroom, to remind yourself of what he's already done for you in heaven. So, so, so in other words, and I, I was convicted about this this week as well, even though you may not see material blessings right now from the Lord, you already have spiritual blessings that you can't see that you can thank him for. And that's what Paul is doing here. Next, number two, rest in your spiritual blessings. Rest in your spiritual blessings. If you've sincerely trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, there, there will be seasons in your walk with the Lord when you feel forgotten. You may feel like he's hiding from you or he's turned his back on you. You may not see God working. You may go for months without seeing an answer to prayer or maybe not even be able to remember the last blessing he gave you. It happens. David journaled about it in the Psalms, and many other church leaders have written about it since then. Some call it the dark night of the soul, the silence of God. But it's in times like these, I want to encourage you to rest in the fact that you're still chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and guaranteed an inheritance. It's in those times, those dark times, those silent times where God seems inactive as, as the song Waymaker references that we sang earlier when God seems distant or silent, that you'll need passages like Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 to, to remind yourself that no matter what happens to you here on earth, nothing God has said about you or done for you has changed in heaven. I know it's hard because... you. When you're struggling and you, you need the Lord to come through with like a financial blessing or you need him to reconcile a relationship or you got a physical ailment that's debilitating or, or so, there's so many other things that afflict us and you want the Lord to come through and fix that thing or provide for that need, it's tangible, it's physical, it's in the physical realm, I understand it's hard to then look at this passage that talks about things that are intangible, things that are in the spiritual realm. But that's where we, we have to apply our faith. We have to, by faith, trust 
that even when I don't see the Lord working, I don't see him coming through and answering prayers. And I'm afraid of with how, how's this thing going to turn out? Am I going to lose my job? Am, am I going to die early? Am I gonna, am I gonna, is my marriage going to dissolve? By faith... You, you need to look back at these blessings and go, okay, but Lord, thank you I'm redeemed. Thank you I have an inheritance waiting for me. Thank you that I'm adopted, that I'm chosen, that, that you have a purpose, Lord. You have a purpose for me to glorify you no matter what happens in this situation I'm facing. That's how you rest in your spiritual blessings. So I want to encourage you to do that. Well, when I was growing up, nobody in my middle-class neighborhood or school liked poor little rich kids. How about you? I doubt much has changed since then. And so I just want to encourage you to join me in being kids who make the most of the inheritance that we've been given. Make the most of the blessings that have been entrusted to us by our Father, because we've been blessed with everything we need to glorify God in our lives. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.